Well, it's good to see you all. Welcome again to Alpine Church. My name is Scott Krebs. I'm a pastor here at Alpine, and I'm excited to be with you here today. We are continuing the series called The Church Has Left the Building, which is kind of funny because we're all in the building right now. But uh, when we wrote the series, we weren't in the building, so we didn't know. We didn't know when we'd be back, but here we are, and uh, we're, glad, we're glad to be here. And if you're new with us, if you're a guest with us here today, we're so glad that you've chosen this Sunday to be here at Alpine. And this series that we're teaching through is all about what it means to be a church and what the Christian church is all about, and so we're glad you're here today. Um, now, Today, we are going to talk about the essential power of the church, and we're just going to get to that in just a moment, but um, our, just uh, as a way to kind of get into this, um, my family, our favorite, our favorite superhero movie is Black Panther in our house, okay? I don't know about you, but I see some Black Panther. All right, good. Uh, so we love Black Panther, and if you've seen Black Panther, you know, so the Black Panther, he's the, he's the king of Wakanda, okay? And if, you, if you're not familiar with Wakanda, it is not a real country, okay? So don't worry about it. But, but the Black Panther, she knows what I'm talking about, is the king of Wakanda, and in order to get his Black Panther powers, he has to drink this herbal tea, and that is some tea, let me tell you, because after he drinks it, he's got like all these superpowers and stuff. And if he doesn't drink it, he's just, a, he's just you know, a really strong, good-looking man. But he, that's all he is. But he drinks that tea, and he's Black Panther. And that's how Black Panther gets passed on from generation to generation, king to king. And I was thinking about that because in order to be Black Panther, you need to drink that tea. You need the power. And today we're going to talk about the essential power of the church, the essential power of the Christian church. And the essential power isn't some tea. The essential power of the Christian church is the Holy Spirit. Today what I want you to see is, I want you to see that in order for us to be the church that God wants us to be, in order for us to be a Christian church, in order for us to be a Christ-centered church, we must be a Holy Spirit-empowered church. He's the one who gives us the source of, He's the source of our power, the source of our, our guidance. And so that's what we're going to see today. We're going to do that by looking at Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first verses in Acts 2, and what we're going to see is the essential role, the special role that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of the church. Now, just to kind of catch you up to what's going on in Acts chapter 2, Jesus, in the Gospels, He dies on the cross. Three days later, He's risen from the dead. And after he raises from the dead, he is, spends 40 days with his disciples, and he's teaching them, and he's spending time with them, and he eats with them, and the, he appears to many people, not just his disciples. First Corinthians tells us he appears to like 500 at one time, and so he appears to many people. But then after 40 days, he ascends to heaven. He, he leaves the earth, he's hidden in the clouds, and he sits down at the right hand of God the Father where he remains today. But he gave a mission to his people as he was leaving, right? And we looked at that mission a couple of weeks ago. The mission of the Christian church is to go and make disciples of all nations, to go and tell people about Jesus, to teach them about salvation in Christ. And so that's the mission that he's delivered to them. And what he tells them is that they will soon receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And that's what we're waiting for in Acts chapter 2. We're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts 2, verse 1, this is what we read. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. I, uh, I don't sure if in the, up in the sound booth there, I'm not able, oh, now I can advance my slide. Never mind. Maybe it just fell asleep for a second. But in verse 1, 
It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. Here's what's going on in Acts 2. It's a special time of the year. It's one of the Jewish festivals, one of the Jewish feasts called Pentecost. And it drew Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire to Jerusalem. So there's thousands and thousands of extra people in Jerusalem. Also there are the disciples. And the disciples are all huddled up in one room. And when we say disciples, it's not just probably the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles of Jesus, but it's uh, more of His followers. And at this time, there were probably about 120 Christians that made up the Christian church, at least in Jerusalem there. And so what you have are God's people gathered together, huddled together, and they're waiting. They're waiting. They're not doing the mission that God called them to do yet because they are waiting for the power of God. I remember that one of our kids' Bibles uh, that we read, it, it, we have at our house, it has this story in it that we're about to read, and the first illustration is of the disciples in sort of a dark room, kind of looking all somber, because they're just kind of waiting, wondering what's going to happen next. And I think that's a pretty good picture, because what this section is t- teaching us and telling us is that the essential mission of the church to go and make disciples is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit, that we really can't even begin to do the work of the church until we have the power of the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, then the church is just a social club, or we're just a group of people that are maybe activists for a certain cause. But when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, when the Holy Spirit comes into our church, now we can fulfill the mission God has for us. So let's dig a little deeper here in verse 2. So again, picture all the disciples the twelve apostles, all in this room, verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So there are the disciples, and who knows what they're doing? Maybe they're they're thinking about, you know, the teachings of Jesus, or maybe they've just been praying, or maybe they've been singing, or maybe they're, uh, who knows what they're doing, reading Scripture, And all of a sudden, the sound like a violent windstorm hits the house. You you ever been trying to sleep when a violent, like a big windstorm comes, you know, and you can't can't go back to bed? I I remember a couple weeks ago, we had this windstorm hit our house, and I'm like, we're going to be taken to Kansas. Like, we are in the Wizard of Oz. This house will not be here in the morning, you know? You start thinking, like, did I tie my trampoline down? I don't think I did, you know? And you're like, I wonder where that's going to be in the morning. And so that was, you know, that's going on. But this mighty windstorm comes. This violent sound. It's at this point it's good to remember that the name Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that word Spirit also means breath or wind. The breath of God is showing up. The Holy Spirit has come. And then verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. This is really cool part of the story. Imagine you're there, imagine you're one of the disciples, you're one of the apostles, and you see this tongue of fire that comes into the room, or just appears, and it starts to divide, and it starts going and and being placed on top of the heads of every one of the apostles. They're just like, wow, what is happening right now? This is amazing. Now, you might know that fire is an image of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible, Throughout the Bible, the Spirit is, is depicted as the fire of God. In fact, there's, there's times in the Old Testament, like 
when Moses and the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. On the top of Mount Sinai is the presence of God, and there's lightning and there's fire. And the book of Hebrews says that our God is an all-consuming fire. And so the, 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 the image of fire is to say the presence of God is here. The presence of God is manifested itself. God is here. He is here. And then in verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All of them began to speak in different languages, and we'll get to that point in just a minute because it's really important for what's about to happen next. But it says that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is really important because something unique is happening in human history in this passage. A change, a shift is happening in history. Before this time in the Old Testament, you would read stories, and sometimes in those stories, people would be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you read the book of Judges, Samson is filled with the Holy Spirit to go fight in a battle. And the battle ends and the Holy Spirit leaves him. Or in our family, we've been reading through First and Second Samuel, and you'll read Saul, he's made king, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesies, he speaks in tongues, but then the Holy Spirit leaves him, and he's just Saul again. But something different's happening here, because the Holy Spirit is coming to these people, he's filling these people, and he's never leaving, he's never departing. The Spirit, God's Spirit, is going to reside inside of them. And so they start speaking in other languages. Now, what's going on here? What's going on is that we're beginning to get a sense of the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, that without the Spirit, we have nothing. Now, you might read the story and think, well, that's really cool. That would have been really amazing to see. I would have definitely put that, captured that on my phone had I been there, but you might think like, well, this, this manifestation of the Holy Spirit, this, this filling of the Holy Spirit, this, this is just for like some apostles, for some super Christians. This isn't for, for, you know, you and me, just everyday people. But what the next part of Acts 2 teaches us is that the essential power, the Holy Spirit, isn't just for some, but He is for all who believe. The Spirit of God is available for all who put their trust in Christ. In fact, I'm just thinking about everything that's going on in our world, the only hope we have in our world for reconciliation and unity and peace is the power of the Holy Spirit. The only hope that we have is not that we as humans will just sort of look within ourselves and be better people. I mean, we've all tried that, and it works for like five minutes, and then we kind of just are back to, you know, fighting. The only hope we have is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is what breaks down the hostility between people. The hostility between races. That's what the, the book of Colossians teaches in the book of Ephesians. They teach that there is this hostility between Jews and Gentiles, between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And the only thing that could end this racial disunity is the cross, because at the cross everyone is equal. And in the same way, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not for a special class of people. It's not just for Jewish people, not just for religious people. It's for all who believe. And it's only the power of the Holy Spirit that can bring peace into our world. And so what we find when we turn into Acts 2, deeper into Acts 2, we find that the Spirit has come for everyone. So verse 5, uh, here's what we see. Remember verse 4? In verse 4, the, the Spirit has, has filled them. They are speaking in other tongues. And then in verse 5, 
maybe you could advance the slide for me. My, 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 my little thing here is being temperamental. Uh, but maybe you could advance to verse 5 for me. It says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Remember what we said earlier, it's the Feast of Pentecost, uh, it's the religious festival, so there's tens of thousands of extra people here, Jewish people, people who've converted to Judaism from all over the Roman Empire. And in verse 6, when they heard this sound, when they heard the disciples speaking in all these other languages, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So, so you have to see what's going on here. The Jewish people, they've come to Jerusalem. And you might think they're Jewish, they speak Hebrew. Well, they might speak a little Hebrew, they might speak a little Greek, but they're from all over the Roman Empire. This is the time of what's called the diaspora. They're dispersed. Jewish people are dispersed all over the Roman Empire. And so their, their native language, what we might call their heart language, it is not Hebrew, it's not Greek, it's something else. And yet when they come together in this massive crowd, they hear Peter speaking, they hear John speaking, and the words they hear are in their own native tongue. And they're like, what's going on? What's happening? How is that possible? It'd be like if we were gathered here today and we had people, you know, French-speaking people and Spanish-speaking people and Indonesian-speaking people and Chinese-speaking people, and we're all gathered together, and there's people up here preaching, and everyone hears, hears, the, hears the Word of the Lord in their own language. That's what was going on. And so the people are amazed. They're like, these Galileans, they're, 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 they're not scholars. They don't know our languages. How are they doing this? Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? What's happening? How are they doing this? What's happening? What's God doing? In fact, some of the ones who are a bit more skeptical, they say, you know, are these guys just drunk? Is that what's going on? They had too much to drink and they're just kind of talking gibberish. And Peter, the apostle Peter, he gets up and he says, you know, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. We haven't had anything to drink. That's what he says. And he goes on to explain everything they're experiencing. He said in verse 16, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he goes on and he quotes the prophet Joel. Peter wants them to understand what they're experiencing, and to do that, he goes back to the Old Testament. If you were here last week, we talked about how the church, the, the, a Christ-centered church, a biblical church, is a church that is founded on the Word of God. And that means that we aren't built on tradition, we're not built on leadership, we're not built on great ideas that we have on Saturday night and think, oh man, they'll really like this on Sunday. That's not what our church is based on. Our church is based on the Word of God. And we said, what, is the, what, what was the Word of God for the apostles? What, what was the Scriptures for the apostles? And the answer is, first and foremost, the Old Testament. Jesus and the apostles, their scripture was the Old Testament. Now, the phrase Old Testament is unfortunate, because when you hear that something is old, what do you want to do with it? Ignore it, right? You want to ignore it. You're like, that's old. I need 2.0, 3.0. I want the updated version. I don't want the Old Testament. But it's really not an Old Testament. It's, it's really the Hebrew Bible. That's a better way to refer to it. 
because it's the Hebrew Bible, it's the Bible of Jesus, the Bible of the apostles, and it's God's Word for us today still, and it tells the message of Jesus Christ, His death, resurrection. It tells the message of humanity and our fallenness and our sinfulness, and it tells the, the message of a big God who's able to save us. That's the message of the Old Testament. And so, so the early church, they had the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, they had the teachings of Jesus, they had the forthcoming writings of the apostles, but here in verse 17, Peter quotes the book of Joel, and what he's trying to tell them is everything that you're experiencing today was predicted by Scripture. Verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. You see, Peter is saying that in the Old Testament, it predicted this moment, it predicted this time, this shift in human history. Let's get a little more context for this. Imagine that you were an Israelite in the Old Testament times. You lived during the time of Moses or Joshua or King David, you know, pick, pick your era. And if you were a believer in God, if you were a devout Israelite, what did that mean? It means first and foremost that you believe the promise of God. When God said that He was going to rescue you, when He was going to rescue His people, when God made that promise starting in Genesis, you believed in that promise. And so just like Abraham your faith, you were justified by faith. That's the example that starts with Abraham and goes all the way through the Old Testament through the New Testament. The people are justified. They're made right by God by faith, through faith. But if you're an Israelite and you believed in the promises of God, then you were going to do some other stuff too. You were going to do your best to follow the law of God in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch. So you're going to make animal sacrifices, and you're going to tithe, and you're going to be part of religious festivals like Pentecost and Passover. You're going to do all these things because it's all part of the Israelite religion. But even though that law came from God and the law is good, there's a fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is the human heart. And it doesn't matter how much we love God. It doesn't matter how much we want to obey God. It doesn't matter how hard we try to be good at following all the rules our human hearts are fundamentally messed up. And so back in the Old Testament, God began to, to promise the people. He said, one day I am going to send my spirit. And when my spirit comes, he is going to dwell inside of you. And when my spirit comes, he is going to take your, your stony heart, that means a heart that is against God, anti-God, and he's going to replace it with a, a heart of flesh, a heart that wants to follow God and serve God. And that is the time of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And if you were an Israelite in the time of David, and you said, well, when is that going to happen? They would say, in the last days. And Peter says, guess what? It's the last days. <laughs> it's the last days. Now, granted, it's a lot of days, 2,000 years of days so far, but it's the last days. Because God has poured out His Holy Spirit. And who does He pour His Spirit out on? All people. And so your sons and daughters will prophesy. Those visions, there's dreams, they will prophesy. And then verse 21, Peter says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. doesn't matter if you're an Israelite or you're a Roman or you're a Scythian, if you're a slave or free, you're rich or poor. doesn't matter. 
Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as Peter goes on to describe in the next verses that we looked at in week one of the series, the Lord is Jesus Christ. Anyone who believes that Jesus has died for their sins was raised from the dead. Anyone who believes that they need a Savior and they can't save themselves and only Jesus can save them, that person, if they call on the name of Christ, they will be saved. And that's the essential message of Christianity. And so Peter says that the Holy Spirit is not just for a select few, but it's for all of us. He's for all of us. He's here to empower us and empower our work as a church. And so here's how I want us to go away today thinking about that, because something really exciting happens. If you're familiar with the end of Acts chapter 2, I think I said that the, the Christian's church started off about 120 people that day. They woke up, there were about 120 Christians they went to bed, there were 3,000 new Christians. 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus that day. That's pretty exciting. That would have been quite a celebration. I can only imagine them calling around restaurants in Jerusalem, can you seat 3,000? We have a party, and we, we got a lot, of, a lot of people. But God's Holy Spirit moved, and 3,000 people came to faith in one day. But what does the work of the Holy Spirit mean for us today? What I want us to see is that the power of the Holy Spirit is essential for every part of our lives today. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, He changes everything. It's Father's Day. I probably should have acknowledged that earlier. It's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all you dads out there and all you men who invest in young people. Happy Father's Day. I'm a dad. I got four kids. And when you become a dad, everything changes in your life, right? Your priorities change. Your bank account changes when you become a dad, right? Your sleep schedule changes when you become a dad. It all changes. It's all affected, right? In the same way, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, He changes everything. And a good example of that is Galatians 5, 24 through 25. It says these words, those who belong to Christ Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you've trusted in Him. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This verse teaches us that there are two primary things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He helps us see the sinful habits in our lives and helps us get rid of them. That's this business about crucified the flesh. The flesh is anything that's anti-God, anything against God. It's like the stony heart from the Old Testament. And what verse 24 is saying is that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to come into your life and to, sh and to shine a spotlight on areas of your life where you've got sin. We've got sinful habits, making sinful choices, sinful bad decisions. And when you see those sinful habits what we're to do is to admit them to God, confess them to God, and then crucify them. Or, as Christians of another era said, put them to death. And that image comes from Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 2, it says that as Jesus was nailed to the cross, He took, he took the, the account of our sin, and He also nailed that onto the cross alongside Him. And so when you and I see sin in our life, we're to confess it to God, and we're to say, God, I don't want that sin anymore. I don't want this sinful habit, I want to get rid of it, and I want to nail it to the cross with Jesus Christ, because He's paid the penalty for that sin. That's putting to death your sinful habits, putting to death the passions of the flesh, the sinful desires. The other side of things, of what the Holy Spirit does, is verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
I love that verse. I love that image, keep in step with the Spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit's just leading us along, and all you got to do is just follow Him. That's what the Christian life is, just follow the Holy Spirit as He leads you. Because the Holy Spirit is trying to produce things in you. The Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, things like gentleness and self-control and patience and peace and love. These are fruits of the Spirit. God grows them inside of you. And as long as you are willing to follow the Holy Spirit, willing to let Him guide you throughout the day, getting rid of you, begin to have more of these fruits in your life. Because whether we're talking about getting rid of your sinful desires or whether we're talking about having the fruit of the Spirit in your life, it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all God's work. It's not your work. You're just fo- along for the ride. You're just following, and you're just, basically your job is to, to not say no, <laughs> to not say, no, I want my sinful habits, or no, I don't want to be, I don't want to have self-control, God, because you can do that, but then you're not going to be walking with the Spirit. And so, personally, in a very real way, every day, day after day, we have this opportunity to daily to kill our sin and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. But even today, the Holy Spirit guides our church. Even today, the Holy Spirit equips us and empowers us for the mission of the church. And and here's the last verse I want to look at with you. Acts 4, verse 31. This is a couple chapters later. It's a time when persecution is on the rise for Christians. And they all gather together. And it says there in verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. You see, when you have the Holy Spirit in your church, when you have the Holy Spirit in your life, when you have the Holy Spirit in your, in your small group, in your family, you are now ready to go on mission for Jesus Christ, and that mission will be a success, not because you're so smart or I'm so good and religious or anything like that, but because the Holy Spirit is the one who's empowering you. And just like the Holy Spirit help them speak boldly in their day, and many came to Christ. When we are empowered by the Holy Spirit and we tell people about Jesus, many, many will come to Him today. And so we desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't be the church. We can't do the work of the church without the Holy Spirit. One of the things I'm so thankful about at Alpine, one of the things I love so much about our church is that the vast majority of you are sold out on the mission. If we're like, the mission is to go and make disciples, the vast majority of Alpine Church is like, yep, we want to accomplish that mission. And we're not perfect at it. We've got a long way to go, make a lot of mistakes. But I want you to know that if we don't have the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us and taking steps ahead of us, it doesn't matter how hard we work, how hard we try, it's not gonna, we're not going to have success. We need the Spirit. We need to listen to Him. We need to follow His leading. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that we don't just have your word, although we love your word, although we need your word, but God, we also have your presence inside of us in the Spirit. God, help us to listen to the leading of of the Spirit. God, help us when you are trying to get our attention, whether it's you're trying to do something new and fresh in our lives and trying to grow something in us, or whether you're trying to expose some sort of sin which can be painful, Lord, help us to listen to the voice of your Holy Spirit. God, we need you for our church. Uh, We need you to lead us, to guide us, to empower us, just like you did many years ago. God, help us to be people led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.